0: I will never forget uh, early in college going to an event where a guy named Josh McDowell was speaking. And Josh McDowell, uh, is known to be a scholar when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus and to the new Testament, like the, the writing, the assembly, the uh, assembling, the formation, the preservation of the new Testament. And at this event, uh, Josh McDowell said, uh, he asked the question he, he asked, he said, Hey, how many of you believe that the Bible is God's word. And a lot of hands, most of the hands went, went up and it was a Christian event. And so then he began to ask, okay, now how many of you know why you believe that the Bible is God's word? And so a bunch of hands went up and he actually came down into the audience and he started asking people to Respond, And so some people knowing that they were going to have to like maybe actually answer verbally in front of like a thousand people, put their hands down real quick. But, but some people were bold enough and brave enough to say why they believe that the Bible was God's word. And so he went up to some of them and, and and someone said, well, because the Bible says so like that. The Bible's God's word because the Bible says so. And he said, that's not good enough. Bunch of hands went down. <laughs> we don't believe that the Bible is God's word. He said, simply just because the Bible says so, that's a, that's a circular reasoning. That's a circular argument. We can't just say that. He said, who else? Why do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Some hands went up. He went and asked some people some questions. Some people could point to some verses, like even like ones we talked about last week, second Timothy chapter three and, and, and Peter, where it talks about how the Bible is God's Word, And we talked about those things last week, that the authority from the Bible does come from itself. It does proclaim to be the word of God. And so we talked about that some, but he said, why do you believe that? And then he began to ask this question, which a lot of skeptics will ask, how do you know that what you've got in your hands is what God originally gave to the church? Like, how do you know it hasn't changed over time? How do you know that the books that are in the Bible are the ones that are supposed to be there and the ones that aren't or are are, are not? How, how, How do you know that? And so what we're talking about tonight is the history of the Bible. Where did it come from? How did we get what we have today? Now, I know if you're like me, at least until I was in ninth grade, history was an absolute snooze fest. Okay, so. If you're here tonight and you're like, man, history's not really my thing, you know, whatever. OK, you may need to like just kind of sit up and lean forward, uh, download our app, follow along with the message notes, fill in the blanks on the message notes. we got we got a lot of things to cover tonight. We're going to talk about where the Bible came from, how we got it. Uh, how has it changed over nearly 2000 years? OK, so in ninth grade, though, I had a teacher who taught. U S history. And it came alive to me in a way I'd never had before. And I began to love history from that day forward. Now, some of you are like, I never got one of those teachers. Okay. I've never liked history. It's always been boring to me. Some of you are like, I love history. I'm excited about this. That's why I'm here tonight. But regardless of where you stand, like when it comes to history and how exciting or how boring it is to, here's what you need to know tonight. This is of ultimate importance. What we are talking about tonight is of the utmost importance because many people have walked away from the faith because they could not answer some of these questions. They had a professor in college or they had a friend that was a skeptic or an atheist begin to pose these questions to them. They could not answer some of these questions and so they turned away from the faith. They walked away from Christianity and maybe some of you have been in that same boat. Many people have been. And so my hope tonight is to give you some answers to some of these questions, simple answers to some of these questions. Now, you can get into the nitty gritty stuff and we're going to get into some of that tonight, but we're going to stay kind of 10,000 foot view of how the Bible came to be what we have today and give you some answers to some of these questions. And so my hope, my prayer is maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you've wandered away from the faith. Maybe you've turned away because you didn't have answers to some of your questions. Maybe you're you're considering whether or not to to come back to the faith, to come back to Jesus. Maybe tonight you, you've always had these questions and doubts in your mind. You've always wondered about some of these things. And maybe tonight will help you, prevent you from turning away from the faith, from turning away from Jesus. Maybe tonight, whether it's for you or Maybe a family member, a friend, someone you know that you may share this with at some point. Maybe it will be just the beginning, like a first step to coming back and investigating in further detail some of the things that we talk about tonight. But make no mistake. And parents, this is huge when it comes to your kids. Make no mistake. When we talk about why we believe what we believe regarding the Bible and why we believe the Bible is God's word, this is of the utmost importance. You need to be able to answer these questions. And when your kids come and say, why do we do this? And why do we do that? You need to be able to answer why we do what we do and why we believe the things that we believe. In fact, the Bible tells us you need to have a reason. You need to be able to give an answer for what you believe and why you believe it. And so tonight I'm going to try to help you in that and give you some answers to some of these questions. See, we've been in a series called Creed. In creed, uh, the word, is, it's not about a band and it's not about the movie or anything like that. People have asked, are you going to do some old creed music? I'm like, I, I don't know. You have to ask Brandon and Mark. But, but the idea for this series came from the idea that Christians throughout church history have always put the most important Christian theology into the form of creeds. You can Google them, you can look some of them up, things like the Apostles' Creed, the the Nicene Creed, but we've always put the most important basic Christian theology into creeds that were simple and easy to understand and easy to memorize so that we could remember the truth about God. We said this last week, that a creed is a lot like a fat guy in a little coat, okay? If you've seen the movie Tommy Boy, you know the reference. It kind of gives us a way to understand and to wrap our minds around God while not really fully wrapping our minds around God. It gives us some handles, if you will, by which we can understand and know God. We can't fully know him, we can't fully understand him, we can't fully wrap our minds around a a transcendent, eternal, all-powerful God, but we can know him because God has chosen for us to know him. And so in this series, what we've said, and we're gonna come back to it each summer, we're gonna deal with a different topic each summer. This summer, we're talking about the Bible and how we got it and and what it means for us and, and how we interpret it and all those kinds of things. We're addressing a lot of those questions. And what we've said in this series is there's a lot that we can disagree on and still have fellowship, like still be on mission together and have community and pursue Jesus together. There's a lot that we can disagree on, but there's some we can't. There is some truth in God's word that we cannot disagree on and move forward together, like as a community and be on mission together and pursue Jesus together. There's some things we have to agree on. Things like Jesus being God, Jesus being risen from the grave, which we've addressed in other series. But in this series, we're talking about this and we must agree on this. We said it last week that the Bible is God's word. Nothing less The Bible is God's word. And we talked about why we believe or the authority that we have to say this from last week. We talked about that last week. And so last week we talked about the authority of the Bible and how the authority of the Bible comes from itself. It claims to be written by God. It comes from its supernatural nature. We talked about its supernatural consistency and the supernatural prophecy that's in the Bible that shows itself to be supernatural and divine. And then we talked about how its authority ultimately comes from Jesus, because Jesus rose from the grave and said that his apostles were given a specific and unique authority and power and ability to write the words of Scripture. And so that's what we talked about last week. And we said that we have to start with and believe that, first of all, that a God exists And we said that we believe that there's an uncaused cause because the law of cause and effect says that every effect or every cause is greater than its effect. That in order for there to be life and a universe and order design and for us to have intelligence and for us to love and have emotion, all those kinds of things means that whatever caused us had to have greater love and emotion and intelligence and order and design and morality for us to exist, for the universe to exist. There is no particle, There is no element, there is no matter that could have existed based on the law of cause and effect that could create or eventually form into life and matter and the universe and things like that that we see based on the law of cause and effect, just just simply and plainly. There must have been a greater, more transcendent outside of space and time, there had to be based on the law of cause and effect, that created life and order, design, emotion, morality, things like that. And so we believe in an uncaused cause, and the only uncaused cause that explains everything that we know and see today is an all-powerful creator God. Who is eternal and exists outside of time and space and can create with order, life and design, emotion, morality, etc. And so we said this God exists, and people that will say that will agree to that. We'll still say, yes, that may be true, but we couldn't possibly know that God. And we said this, that would be true if he hadn't given us ways to reveal himself. But because God is all powerful, he's given us a way to know him and to have a relationship with him, ultimately through Jesus. And then secondly, we said through his word. And so we believe that the Bible is God's word. So that's some of, that's a recap of a little bit of what we talked about last week. If you want to catch it on our app or our podcast, things like that, if you missed it, go online and catch that. Today, though, we're talking about the history of God's word. How did we get today, the 66 books, specifically, we're going to focus more on the New Testament. So the 27 books in the New Testament, how did we get those today and how do they compare with what the writers originally Wrote. Where did that come from? Has it changed over time? And to do that, we have to start out by defining a word. And that word is canon. This word is used often when you're talking about the, the Bible and how the books of the Bible made it into the Bible and how there are other letters or books maybe that you heard of and crazy movies like the Da Vinci Code and other things but, that are totally fiction, but, but have said there's other letters, there's other books, maybe you've heard this from skeptics and, and, and atheists and things like that, that would say, well, there's all these other letters, you know, and it was flawed, errant men that decided what was in and, and, and what didn't make it. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. But what we have to start with is the definition of the word canon, which just means, just for our purposes, very simply, and if you're following along in the app, you can fill in the blanks as we go. But the definition of canon for our purposes, we're going to say are the books that are inspired by God. And so they are Bible. Another way to say what's canon, what's not is what's Bible and what's not. And so when we refer to the word canon, we're saying the books that met the standard of being inspired by God. And so we're going to break this down into basically a, a who, a what, and a how. All right. So first of all, who, Who? Decided what was canon and what wasn't. Who got to decide? Because the skeptic will say, and you'll hear this, well, it was just a, a bunch of messed up men. If, if man had, is sinful, and we believe that, and messed up and, and broken and not divine, not supernatural, then how is it that you trust that this is God's word if it was just a bunch of men who decided what was going to be in the Bible. So who decided what was going to be Canon or Bible and who did well, ultimately number one, here's who decided ultimately it was Jesus. Ultimately Jesus is the one who decided what would be Canon and what was not in John chapter 14 and 16. And we saw this last week, Jesus said this about the writing of the new Testament. When he was speaking to the disciples in John 14 in verse 16, he said this, hold on, let me get to it. He said that you, he's speaking to the disciples, he said, by the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be led into all truth and the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything that I have said. And he told them that then they would go on to write and record the things that the Holy Spirit told them to write down and record. So basically Jesus was saying, you guys, the risen son of God, remember this is Jesus is God. We've talked about that in another series. We don't have time to dive into all that right now. But Jesus being God says these disciples that were following him, had the authority and the power through the Holy Spirit inside of them. And Jesus said that that not only them, but but, but you and I, when we give our lives to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, the presence of God inside of us. So Jesus was saying, you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is gonna come and lead you into all truth. That's what he told his disciples. The Holy Spirit's gonna lead you into all truth. He's gonna remind you of what I've said. And then you're going to write these things down. And Jesus said, my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. You're going to see things that, that will, that will come into life and will die. You're going to see books that are going to be written and then discarded. But my words, Jesus said, will never pass away. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to remind you of everything I've said. He's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. And you will write my words and my words will never pass away, Jesus said. So ultimately, who decides what's Bible and what's not? What's canon and what is not? Well, ultimately, is Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. And so he has the power and the authority. And he said that in Matthew 28. Remember, he said, all authority has been given to me. And he gave the disciples the power and the authority and through the power of the Holy Spirit, through divine inspiration to write the words of scripture and then to assemble decide and assemble what books, what letters would be Canon would be Bible. So ultimately the authority and the power uh, for what is Canon and what is, it comes from Jesus, but he gave that power and authority to the disciples. And so secondarily, Who decided was the 12 apostles? The 12 apostles, see these 12 that were following Jesus and one was replaced Judas with Matthias. You read that in the book of Acts, but between the apostles and Paul who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that's what it took to be an apostle. You had to see Jesus actually risen from the dead and to be given a ministry from Jesus himself. So you had to have a firsthand account of the resurrection of Jesus and a firsthand mission given to you by Jesus made you an apostle. And so Jesus told the apostles and later Paul, when he appeared to Paul, he gave them the power and authority to write the words of scripture, assemble it into canon so that you and I, Jesus remember said, my words will never pass away so that you and I would have what we have today. Ultimately that has come from Jesus, but Jesus used men as he's always done throughout the scripture. I mean, we see this even true with Mary, right? Mary, a flawed, broken, sinful woman. Yet God in his supernatural power, grace and mercy comes and through the power of the Holy Spirit conceives the son of God, Jesus, in her womb. She is broken and sinful, yet God uses her anyways through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of redemptive history. And in the same way, God has used broken, sinful men, specifically tonight, we're talking about the apostles to write the words of scripture and then to assemble them into what we call canon, into Bible. So secondarily, it's the disciples, the apostles, and you include Paul, who were given this authority to decide what was Bible And what wasn't because they saw Jesus risen from the grave, proving that he was the son of God because he's the son of God. He has the authority to say how this is going to happen and what's going to work. And then thirdly, we have the early church fathers. Now, these were guys who were direct disciples of the disciples. So Jesus told the disciples, remember Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Well, these guys were disciples of the disciples and many of them were leaders in the church in different cities and different communities. And so under the, again, direction of the Holy Spirit through Jesus giving the apostles the authority and then these early church fathers who were the disciples of the apostles, Agreeing together, these letters, these documents that the apostles were writing are what is going to be included. But remember, this is all under the direction and power and authority of the Holy Spirit, leading and guiding and directing these men. So ultimately, who decides what's canon? Well, your mind should immediately go to Jesus. Jesus because everyone else that follows are broken and sinful, messed up people just like you and just like me. But God, which is the great news of the gospel, but God in Jesus gave power and authority and the enabling to the apostles to write the scripture and then to compile it, to assemble it and led and guided them to assemble these certain books and to say, these are the ones that meet the criteria. These are the ones that meet the sin, and these are not. So they are the ones who decide But ultimately it was Jesus. And that's what we have to remember. Jesus, the son of God is ultimately the one who decided what was canon. secondly, here's the next question we're going to answer. What is, this is a big word canonical. What is canonical? In other words, how did they determine? what got in and what didn't, how did they determine? Because a lot of skeptics, well, there's a lot of other letters out there. There's a lot of other documents out there that claim to be written by God. So, so how did they determine it? Like what was the rule? What was the standard? Did they have some criteria by which they decided what's going to be Canon canonical and what isn't going to be Canon? How did they decide? You know, thinking about this reminded me about a week ago, uh, me and some friends went to Adventure Park and I took my kids. My wife was out of town. And, you know, when your wife's gone, guys, you need a lot of things to do, you know, to keep them busy. So so we went to Adventure Park. We hadn't been there yet. And we're in line to ride the the bumper cars. Well, my sons run right past the sign and into uh, the little arena where they do the bumper cars. Okay. well, my daughter runs by it, too. And she's just turned six. She's a lot shorter than they are. And so she runs by the sign too. Many of you know the sign I'm referring to, but she runs in, she gets in the car. Well, the attendant walks up and says, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to ride in the car. You're not tall enough. And so they had her get out and she was upset. And they came to me and they said, Hey, you know, she's not tall enough. Well, what this girl didn't know in particular is that the girl that was manning the station before her had let Nixon ride the bumper cars already twice. And so I said, can we measure her real quick just to see, just to make sure, because the last girl let her ride the last two times. And so she went up, to the line and she stood up and she was below. I said, Nick's is saying straight up, like saying straight as high as you can, like lift your head up as high as you can possibly get. And she was right at the line. I was like, Oh, she's tall enough. She, you know, she made it. She's right at the line. The girl was like, okay. She, you know, so they, they let her go by. She met the standard. She met the, the line. Many of you guys, if you have kids, you've been to Great Wolf Lodge in, in Dallas and 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 we've been there several times with with our kids and and Levi was always tall enough in all the previous years that we've gone, we've been a few times. He was always tall enough to ride the the slides at the very back. And you know what I'm talking about? Like the ones that are real fast and real tall and, and, and the scary ones, okay? So we always went and did that while Coben, who wasn't yet tall enough and Nixon stayed with my wife because they weren't tall enough. They didn't make it. They weren't tall enough to ride that ride. Now, unfortunately for Coben, we've never been back since he's now tall enough to ride those rides. So he hadn't gotten to ride those slides and we're not sure we're ever going back. But if you're tall enough, you get to ride the ride. And that's basically what we're talking about when we say, what is canon? What is Bible and what is what made it and what didn't and how did they determine it? Just like that sign with the number of inches you have to be. In order to ride a ride says this is what you have to be in order to make it what was the criteria by which they decided what's canon what's bible and what isn't well ultimately the question was what's inspired and wasn't what isn't and so here's what they were basically asking what's inspired and what isn't now we're going to talk about some specifics of how they why they believe something was inspired or not and that was always under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But there were some things by which there were some criteria by which they decided what was canon and what wasn't. But ultimately what we're talking about is what's again, what's inspired. What did they believe under the direction and power and authority of the Holy Spirit given to them by Jesus what did they believe was canon and what wasn't? That's the ultimately the deciding factor, but there are some criteria. So here's number one, here's how they determine. First of all, it had apostolic authorship. When you read through the new Testament, you will find every book or letter in the new Testament has been written by an apostle, by an apostle secretary, or it was given authority. It was approved by an apostle, like in the case of Hebrews. So every letter or book in the New Testament has either been written by an apostle, the scribe or secretary of an apostle, or the apostles confirmed and agreed this is inspired. It is canon. It's going in the Bible. And so. By the end of the first century, many of the apostles, there there was already kind of a, a list of what's canon and what wasn't many of the books of the new Testament before the end of the first century, like while the apostles were still alive, were already being conferred and decide this is canon, this is Bible, this is inspired. And there were already lists of what's canon and what's not already being formed by the end of the first century when the apostles were still alive. So number one in apostolic authority, because that's, where, again, where do we go back to? What's the foundation of the apostolic authority? It's from Jesus. You're gonna see all throughout everything we talk about, this all goes back to Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. He's the son of God. He gave power. He gave authority. He's been working and moving through people all throughout church history. So it all goes back to Jesus. But... They did have some criteria by which the Holy Spirit led them to know whether something was inspired. Or not. So it had to have apostolic authority because they wanted the people that were there that had the first hand eyewitness accounts deciding what's going to be Bible and what isn't. It wasn't the, the, the family member, the friend that was told the 10th or 11th time, kind of like when you think about the, the phone Game, you know, when you you tell someone and then they tell someone and they tell someone and they tell someone. They knew for this to be authoritative, it had to come from the apostles. It had to have first hand accounts. And so that's what you'll see throughout the New Testament are the first hand accounts of the people who saw Jesus rose from the grave, ate with him, talked with him over a period of 40 days, it says in Acts, and saw Jesus risen from the grave. They were the ones that were given a mission by Jesus to do their apostolic office. And to lead in that way. And so every letter, every book in the New Testament has apostolic authority, written by an apostle, an apostle scribe or secretary, or they were approved by the apostles. And so you'll see, like in 1 John, he'll say, The things that we are proclaiming to you are things that we've seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. This is a first hand account. These are letters that have been approved by firsthand eyewitness accounts, the people that walked with Jesus. So they had apostolic authority. Secondly, there was theological agreement because God does not contradict himself. These letters, these things that were included in the New Testament canon were thought to be in line with the story of God as Uh, portrayed and as written in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies and the story of God that was in the Old Testament. So they were in line with that. And not only that, they were in line with each other. They were in line with the words of Jesus. There had to be theological agreement for a letter to be included in the New Testament canon. And then finally, there had to be general application the letters that were included had a general application. In other words, here's what we mean by that, that the letter was needed. They believe this letter, this document, the apostles believe this, this letter, this document is needed for faith. It's needed for our growth spiritually. It's, it's needed for our life in Christ, for church practice. It was being used at that time by the majority of churches already at that time. And so they said, these letters are needed. We need these letters and documents for ongoing life and growth in Christ and for church practice. We need these letters in order to grow spiritually. But here's ultimately what they were saying with all three of these criteria. They were saying, these letters are inspired under the direction of the Holy Spirit, using these criteria. Here's what they were saying. These letters, these documents, ultimately, they're they're inspired by God. And we know that because the Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us and saying, these are The letters that are going to be included these are canon and these are not our trust is not in man our trust is in god who said his words would never pass away and then third we're going to look at how how has the canon changed and many of you have probably heard this one before And here's what we mean. How how has the content in the Bible changed over nearly 2000 years of church history? Because the writers wrote before the end of the first century. And so it's been nearly 2000 years. So how do you know that what you've got in your Bible is what the original authors wrote when they penned the letters of scripture? How has it changed? Because it's been men, again, here's the argument, it's been flawed, errant, broken, sinful man that has been responsible for copying these letters and documents all throughout church history. So surely, go back to the telephone game, surely things have changed in nearly 2000 years and we can't really trust, surely, we can't really trust what we've got today because there's been nearly 2,000 years of broken, sinful man to get in the way, to embellish, to add, and to take away. Surely we can't trust what we have today. People say that all the time. Maybe you've had that question yourself. How could we trust it? Well, here's what's been said when it comes to the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, that we have an embarrassment of riches. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to New Testament manuscript evidence. Take a look at this chart. We're going to put it up on the big screen too. And again, you can see this better on your app, this graph, this charts right on the app in the notes if you're following along with us. But here's a graph of some of the most ancient documents in all of antiquity. Okay. And up here, we've got the author, we've got date written, we've got the earliest known copy of that piece of work. We've got the approximate time span between the original, like when the, 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 the originals, the autographs, the ones that were first pinned, and then the first copies, the time span between those, the number of copies that we have today, and then the accuracy of the copies when you compare them to the earliest manuscripts. Manuscripts. And so here, this is a chart. These are all the major works, many of the major works in all of antiquity and you'll recognize some of them. You've got got Plato here, um, you've got Herodotus here and then let's go to the next one. Uh, You've got Caesar and Tacitus, Aristotle, Sophocles. You've got uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, so these are some of the most popular and famous works in all of antiquity. Let's look at some of Caesar's writings where we get a lot of Roman history among him and others. Let's go back. You look at Caesar's writings and we've got, again, the, the date that it was written. We've got the number of copies and, and the, the date of the earliest copies. And so, so here we've got 10 copies of what Caesar wrote and the difference between the time that it was written and the earliest copies is about a thousand years. But we've got, we've got 10 copies. okay. Let's go down to to Aristotle, okay? We've got Aristotle, he's writing around 384, 322 BC. We've got the earliest copies uh, of his manuscripts, AD 1100, so the time span between the, the earliest when it was written and the first copies, about 1400 years, and we've got about 49 manuscripts of what Aristotle wrote. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, thought to be one of the most historically accurate ancient documents when you compare the date of the earliest copies to the date they were written and the number that we have. So look here. So written around 900 BC, um, earliest copies about 400 BC. So we've got a 500 year span between the, when it was written and the earliest copies. And we've got about 643 manuscripts. That's a lot of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey giving us about a 95% historically accurate documents that we have today compared to what the originals were that were written 500 years between the originals and the earliest copies that we have. Okay. So now let's get to the new Testament written in the first century. Nope. Go back still. Okay. Written in the first century AD between 50 and hundred AD earliest uh, copies, manuscripts that we have date back to the second century AD. Some say that are closer to the beginning, or the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Okay, so we've got less than 100 years between our earliest copies and when the date of the actual writing of the New Testament documents. Less than 100 years. We've got over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's just in Greek. When you add Latin and other languages, it totals over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, giving us a 99.5% textual variance, because we can look at what we have today and we can look to our earliest copies of which we have over 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts, different portions of scripture. And we can know that today what you hold in your hand is 99.5% textually, textually accurate. That's how little has changed between the earliest manuscripts that we have that date back to within a hundred years of the time that they were actually written to what you have today in your hand. That's God. That's God. That's God superintending the assembly and the preservation and the copying of his word. It makes me, it reminds me of what Jesus said. My words will never pass away. My words will never pass away. You're going to have so much evidence to confirm and to know that what you've got in your hand thousands of years later is what the authors actually wrote. And most of this 0.5 textual variance, 90% of that is spelling errors. Another 5% of that is just word order. So we're talking no content. No major doctrines have been affected over 2,000 years of church history. Now let's look at some of the examples. This is really cool. You may not care about this. I love this stuff. Okay, I eat this stuff up. This, I, I, I love it. Okay, so here's P52. This is the earliest manuscript we have from the New Testament. The earliest. Check out some of the facts of this manuscript. It has contents of John 18, 31 to 33, 37, and 38. Okay, here's the original date that we believe that the Gospel of John was written 96 AD, so before the close of the, the first century. Okay, here's the earliest manuscript date that we have. This piece that you just saw, that picture, it's a digital picture of it, 29 years. This is the earliest known portion of a manuscript that we have for the New Testament. It's the earliest. And we have over 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts, but this is, this is one, this is a sample. This is a portion of one of them. So it's 29 years from the original date of writing. And here's where it at. I, don't, I don't want you to think I'm lying, you know, or just making this stuff up or just, you know, kind of found a random image or something. Okay. Here it, it's in this library, John Ryland's library in Manchester, England. That's P 52. Let's look at what's next. This is P 46. Go to the facts. This one has got contents of Romans and Hebrews, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, okay. So the date that these uh, were written, these letters were between the 50s and 70s in the first century, okay. Here's this manuscript dates, dates back to 200. So the difference in the time span, again, between the originals when it was written and the earliest manuscripts that we have, these manuscripts is 150 years. And so the University of Michigan's library. Let's go next, P66 see that cool picture in Greek. How many of y'all can read that? Nobody, me neither. Okay. So here's the contents. All right here. We got some from John. We got fragments from from this. Okay. Here's when the, again, the date that this was written around the seventies manuscript date that the picture you just saw comes from manuscript that was around uh, 80 to 100. So again, the approximate time span, 130 years. And this one's in Geneva. These are three of over 5,600 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. When you add in the other languages, over 24,000. And so when we say what you've got in your hands matches up to what the authors originally wrote, you can have confidence. That's not some, some pipe dream. That's not some just kind of sky in the pie, uh, you know, sky in the, or pie in the sky, rather, idea, okay? okay? It's not, we have the manuscripts. We can prove it. We can prove that what we have now matches to what the authors originally wrote. We can prove it. We've got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to these manuscripts. And now what we have today has been copied over and over and over again by scribes. And now as I've been studying and listening to podcasts, now there's ministries that are going around the world and taking digital photocopies of these manuscripts to preserve them for thousands of more years so Jesus not return. Who do you think inspired that to happen? Jesus. Jesus. He said, my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth are gonna pass away and my words will still be around. They will still be preserved. You know, as I was studying and looking at some of these manuscripts, I found out that there was one scribe in particular who would make a note at the end of some of the copies that he would make of the New Testament, he'd be writing down and copying these New Testament scribes. This was their job. This was their their ministry. Is believe, they believed God called them to do was to write word for word, letter for letter, and copy these manuscripts so that we would have them in later, thousands of years later. There was a scribe, one in particular, that when he was done, he put this at the end of all of his manuscripts that he copied, and he did it many times. And so people who have read these manuscripts and translated them and taking pictures of them, they begin to see this. There's this one scribe, and he writes this at the end of all of the manuscripts that he's copied. Here's what he writes. The hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave. It was like he was writing to people later. The hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave. But these words that are written will last until the fullness of time. AD 179. 1079. And you know what? That dude, he's rotten in the grave. For sure. That was a thousand years ago. But he agreed with Jesus that his words will never pass away. It was Jesus who gave the authority to the apostles. It was to write. It was Jesus who superintended the process through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gathering and the assembly of the canon that you and I have today. It was Jesus that enabled these scribes to copy over and over and over again, all of these thousands of manuscripts. It's always been Jesus. Our trust is not in man. Our trust is in Jesus. And so you'll have people say, so you're trying to tell me that God inspired errant, sinful, flawed, broken men to write and to record and to assemble his word? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And parents, you see this happen a lot with your own kids. This idea, this concept. If you've ever walked through a parking lot or a theme park with your kids, especially with little kids, what do they always do? They run way ahead of you. They get way behind you. They get distracted. They go to the left. They go to the right. And what do you do when that happens, especially in a theme park with a lot of other people, with little kids? What do you do? Some parents put leashes on their kids. I always thought that was crazy. Now I completely understand it. If you got several kids, and they're running around, and they're like squirrels, and they see something shiny, and they take off, you know, or or whatever. Okay, when you have kids, you understand, oh, now I get why they use the leash. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, but when you're in a theme park, and there's thousands of people, and you got little kids and they're going every which direction what do you do you're always saying stick with me stay with me don't run off keep up speed up and a lot of times what you do is you'll begin to grab them by the hand stick with me stay with me we're going at this pace here's where we're going could your kids make it to the next ride on their own no way but with your help they could You could take them by the hand. You could lead them. You could guide them. You could help them get to the destination that they need to go. With your help, they can make it. With your help, hopefully, prayerfully, they don't get lost. It's exactly what God has done with us. Our perfect heavenly father took these guys by the hand and enabled them to write the words of scripture enabled them to assemble these books into the canon for you and I to have today, because Jesus said this and he always comes through on his word because he's God. My words will never pass away. And man, as I was studying this week, this was so powerful to me and it gave me so much more confidence to do what I Do because I saw with my own eyes the way that God will supernaturally use broken, flawed, sinful, messed up people for His glory. And He does the same thing and wants to do the same thing with you, just like He used the apostles, not to write new words of Scripture. That's done, the canon's closed but he wants to use you in supernatural ways for his kingdom and for his glory. And he can do it regardless of what you've been through, regardless of how messed up you are, regardless of what your past looks like, regardless of how inept or ignorant or whatever you are, God can use you for his glory, for his name. He can use you for things that matter in eternity, not just for people here and now, but for people generations later. That's the power and the grace and mercy of God to use broken, sinful, flawed men and women for his name, for his glory. God's always been doing that. He's always going to do that. It's the way he's chosen to work. And so ultimately our trust and the authority of scripture and what we have today matching up to what they have, ultimately our trust is in God. And so Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, said this. The preservation and correct assembling of the canon of Scripture should ultimately be seen by believers then, not as a part of church history subsequent to God's great central acts of redemption for his people, but as an integral part of the history of redemption itself. Just as God was at work in creation, in the calling of his people Israel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and in the early work and writings of the apostles, so God was at work in the preservation and assembling together of the books of Scripture for the benefit of his people for the entire church age. Ultimately, then, we base our confidence in the correctness of our present canon on the faithfulness of God. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Our trust is in Jesus. And so here's my big idea for you tonight. If you could remember one thing, it's this. It's if Jesus has risen from the dead. And Paul said, this is what our faith is based on. Our entire faith is based on Jesus rising from the grave. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then he is God. And if Jesus is risen from the dead and he is God and and he can speak things into creation and into existence, like we said at the beginning, if he can do that, if he can bring sight to the blind, if he can raise the dead and if he himself has been risen from the dead, go back. If he has been risen from the dead, then he is able to preserve his word for you and me. If he's been risen from the dead, this is nothing. All bets are off. If Jesus has been risen from the dead, he's able to preserve, he's able to heal, he's able to bring life to the dead, he's able to to save you no matter what the circumstances might be. If Jesus has risen from the dead, there are no big and small prayer requests because nothing is too hard for God. If Jesus has been risen from the grave, all bets are off. And so ultimately the question is, do we trust the Bible is what we have today is what they had. The ultimately the question goes back to, well, has Jesus been risen from the grave? Because he said his words would never pass away. And so has Jesus been risen from the grave, and if he's God, then we can believe what he said. His words will never pass away and he's able to preserve. You see, when a baby's born, you go to the hospital to see the baby. You go to see the child. I'm willing to bet none of us have ever showed up at the hospital and said, I wanna see the birth certificate. Uh, Who cares about the baby? I don't care the pictures of the baby, you know, whatever. I mean, forget the baby. I need to see the birth certificate. Can you show me the birth certificate? I'm willing to bet none of us have ever done that. We've never shown up and asked for the birth certificate. The birth certificate is just a record of the event. We believe the child is alive because we, we see the child. We believe the child is your child because it's your child. The birth certificate is the record. Our faith. And the authority of our faith comes from the resurrection. It doesn't even really come from the Bible. It comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That's what Paul said. If Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is useless. Forget every other question that you've ever been asked. If Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is useless. But if he has been, then he is who he said he is. And if he has been and he is God, then everything he has said will come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away and his words will still be around. And so when it comes to the authority of the Bible, when it comes to any other question, we can always go back. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Okay, yeah, I believe that he did because of all the reasons we've talked about in the past and other series and things like that, that Jesus did rise from the grave. So then everything that Jesus said is from God. He said last week, Jesus quoted it from the Old Testament. He gave the disciples the authority to write and to assemble. So, so all of it comes back to our trust in God. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter five. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Authority for the Old Testament canon. I didn't come to abolish those things. No, no, no. I came to fulfill them. In other words, those are words from God. And I've come to fulfill those words from God. The Old Testament, Jesus said, God, that was all me. It was all about me. It has its origin in me. I didn't come to abolish any of that. I came to fulfill it. Now watch what he says. And I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, the end of time Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose has been achieved. In Hebrew, the idea is every jot and tittle. We would say it like this, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. What Jesus was saying is until heaven and earth disappear, the smallest detail The T's being crossed, the I's being dotted will not disappear until their purpose is achieved. Jesus was saying, listen, I've got this, I've got this. And I love you so much that I want you to know that I have been risen from the grave talking to you like 2000 years later. I I want you to know, and I want you to know, and I want you to know, and I want you to know about what God has done for us through Jesus. I want you to know that there's been a man, a God-man who died on the cross for your sin, in your place, rose from the grave so that you could be made right with God and know for sure that when you die, you're going to have, I want you to know that. And so I'm going to assemble and preserve my word so that thousands of years later, you will know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Every I will be dotted. Every T will be crossed. 99.5%. My words will never pass away. And so our trust is in Jesus. And so you have a choice. You can bow up to Jesus. You can bow up to his word and your pride and arrogance or you can bow down to Jesus and you can bow down to his word. You know, there's no real middle ground. There's no kind of straddling the fence, picking and choosing what you want, what you like in the Bible, what you don't like in the Bible. There's no fence to, to straddle. We don't have that choice. In fact, throughout history, church history, it's been said, you either bow down to its authority or you need to throw it in the fire. You either bow down to the authority of the Bible or you just toss it in the fire. There's nothing to pick and choose. It's all or nothing. There's no fence to straddle. It's either God's word or it isn't. And so you can bow up or you can bow down. My challenge for you tonight, because Jesus has risen from the grave because he's able to preserve his word, bow down, bow down to Jesus, bow down to the authority of the Bible. Would you stand? Our team's gonna lead us in, in worship and here in a little bit. We're going to have some, some baptisms. And as you stand, I want to remind you that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy spirit wrote in Philippians chapter two, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so you can do that today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you can bow down to him, or you can continue to bow up and resist him and run from him. There's only one of two choices. It's all or nothing. Bow down or bow up. Bow down to his authority or throw this book in the fire. It's one or the other. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. And so God, I pray tonight, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us hearts to say, your word will be a lamp to my feet, a light into my path. I will read it. I will meditate on it day and night, like we talked about last week, so that my life will be a blessing. And so God, tonight, Would you give us the faith to say that the Bible is your word and to bow down and to not bow up?